From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Heart failure is a serious condition, but many people with heart failure manage their condition and are able to live full lives. Here to talk about what's important to know about heart failure is Natasha Zimitrowitz. She's a nurse who is Upstate's heart failure data coordinator and educator. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Natasha. Thanks, Amber. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's begin with a definition. Um, heart failure doesn't necessarily mean the heart isn't working, right? It just means basically that there's something wrong with your pump. So your heart works like a pump. It squeezes blood out to the body where it needs to go. And then it returns as your heart relaxes to fill back up with blood. So when we're talking about heart failure, the heart is not necessarily failing. There's just something wrong with the pump. It's usually either the squeeze or the relaxing of the heart. So is this something that develops over time and affects mostly older people, or can this affect anyone? There are several different forms that heart failure comes in. Um, many of the heart failure patients that we see are chronic, meaning long-term heart failure patients. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why you get heart failure. Um, there's certain reasons why you would have what we call an acute or um, a sporadic episode of heart failure that usually resolves. But I think today for our purposes, we're going to talk about chronic heart failure um, because that's what we see mostly in our community. And does it affect men and women equally? It does. Um, there is a population, the African-American population is the highest risk because one of the reasons that people get heart failure is from longstanding high blood pressure. And that is a population that is at risk for high blood pressure. Um, so that is one of the causes. And um, one of the biggest causes is coronary artery disease. So when you talk about high blood pressure, people who control high blood pressure or people who don't have high blood pressure, they have a lower risk for heart failure. Is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And some people are prone to high blood pressure through genetics, um, but a lot of it can be managed with lifestyle change too. watching what you eat, um, especially um, eating low fat, low cholesterol and low sodium foods um, definitely can help control blood pressure. Well, can you talk a little bit about the typical symptoms of heart failure? I'm curious about how it's usually discovered. Does it does it just turn up? during a routine medical exam, or are there symptoms people need to be aware of? Well, there's definitely textbook symptoms of heart failure. And unfortunately, by the time people end up coming to the hospital for heart failure, they're very short of breath and, and really having trouble breathing. Um, but if you know the signs and symptoms, you can catch it before you get to that point, and we can manage it in the outpatient setting. So. When you have an issue with the squeeze or the relaxing of your heart, your body takes it as the fact that you don't have enough blood. You're either not squeezing out enough blood or you're not able to fill up your heart with, en with enough blood. So your body gets in this mode and starts sending out all these chemical messages telling your body that you need more fluid. So that's what we are actually looking for, are signs of fluid overload. So typically fluid goes to three different places. One is your lungs, two is your belly, and three is the outside of your body. So I'm talking, I think jumping jacks, hands, legs, ankles, feet, okay? When we're talking about the lungs, 
sometimes people will notice that they're having trouble sleeping. So if you're laying down and on a typical night going to sleep, but you notice that you have to prop yourself up with some extra pillows, or even sometimes sleep in a recliner to breathe easier, that's a sign that you probably have fluid in your lungs and you wanna call your doctor. Another sign that there's fluid in your lungs is sometimes people can go to sleep just fine, but in the middle of the night, they wake up gasping for air, short of breath. They have to sit up and catch their breath. Typically it goes away after a few minutes, but you still wanna call your provider in the morning because you probably have fluid in your lungs. And then another sign that most people would never ever relate to fluid is a dry cough. So many people tell me that they could have a dry cough or they feel like they've got something stuck in their throat and it's just not coming out. So if you have a cough, but you're not sick, you have no fever, no sore throat, no runny nose, but you're still coughing, it's time to call the doctor because that could be fluid in your lungs. You're right. That's something I would never think of a dry cough relating to fluid. Um, interesting. Especially with your heart, you would think maybe it would be more of a lung thing. So um, another place that uh, fluid goes, excuse me, is your belly. So we want to think about things like your pants fitting too tight or um, one thing that with your belly that people would never relate to your heart is a loss of appetite. So if you're sitting down for a meal that typically you would normally eat the whole thing, but now you're filling up after sitting down and having only three or four bites, that's a sign that there's fluid in your belly. There's not enough room for food. So you're not feeling as you're feeling fuller quicker. You're not feeling as hungry as normal. You want to call your doctor for that. And then the last place that fluid typically goes is that very outside of your body, your hands, your legs, your ankles, feet. Um, so if your fingers feel really tight or your knuckles or veins on your hands are disappearing or today you're puttering around just fine in your shoes and tomorrow you put them on and they're too tight, it is definitely time to call the doctor. You're holding on to fluid and we need to nip it in the butt, take care of it right away. Um, and we can do that in an outpatient setting, sometimes even over the phone, and you don't end up coming to the emergency room. So seeing like swollen ankles or or hands, that if, if I understand you correctly, that might happen later than some of those other symptoms, the, the cough or the belly accumulation. So, so actually, any of these can manifest at any time. But typically, you can catch these symptoms before you become overtly short of breath, where you're struggling and in distress and have to come to the emergency room. So we want to know these little signs that normally you wouldn't relate to your heart. We want to know these. So like I said before, we can nip it in the butt, take care of it, outpatient, and you feel better. You get that fluid off at home, usually with a medication. Um, through urinating, it takes off that extra fluid, you feel better, you don't have to come to the hospital. So let me ask you, fluid retention, could that, is that always um, heart failure or could it be something else? There's other causes of fluid retention. Um, sometimes people have fluid retention if they have kidney issues, um, but if you know the signs and symptoms of fluid overload from your heart, you can put these all together and understand that it's going to be probably your heart that really needs to get taken, um, get a look taken at. So if someone listening to this um, has these symptoms, do can, should they just contact their regular doctor or do they need to find a cardiologist or I, what, what should they do? If you don't already have a heart doctor, you should definitely call your primary care physician. 
let them know your signs and symptoms, and then they'll be able to guide you best from there. If you do have a heart doctor, absolutely let your heart doctor know. And there are certain doctors that have heart failure clinics. So you wanna let one of your heart failure nurses or nurse practitioners know if you're involved with one of those. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Natasha Zimitrowitz. She's a nurse who's the heart failure data coordinator and educator at Upstate. And we're discussing what's most important to know about heart failure. Well, I'd like to ask you, how is heart failure diagnosed? Once you get to the doctor, what are the tests that are, are you're likely to face? Well, one of the things that we say here in the hospital is that heart failure can be a clinical diagnosis, meaning there may not be anything definitive in testing, but there's a lot of different things that point us to the direction. Uh, one definitive test is an echocardiogram that's an ultrasound of your heart. So just like when you're pregnant and they put jelly on your belly, they put a little jelly on your chest and take a picture of your heart. It shows them how the walls of your heart are moving, how your valves are working, and how the squeeze of your heart is doing. It also can look at the relaxation of your heart and make sure that it's functioning properly. So that could be one of the ways that you do diagnose heart failure. Sometimes people come into the hospital though and their echocardiogram looks okay, but by all other signs, they are in heart failure. So they will be treated as heart failure patients. So do you either have heart failure or you don't have heart failure, or is it a gradient? I think that most of the patients I see, many of them anyways, feel that their heart failure was uh, and what we call an acute episode or a one-time thing. They had heart failure, they went to the hospital, they got the fluid off, they feel better and now it's gone. But what people don't understand is that this is a chronic disease and it needs, needs to be managed over a period of time. Heart failure can get better. Um, we have what we call guideline-directed medical therapy uh, through the American Heart Association and um, the American College of Cardiology both got together and put the guidelines together for a medication regimen for these patients through years and years, decades of trials of thousands of patients that prove that certain medications will increase your cardiac function, increase your length of life, and decrease hospital readmission. So how do you describe ejection fraction? So take the first word, ejection. The first part of that is eject. So basically, it's the squeeze of your heart. It's the amount of blood, excuse me, the percentage of blood that is ejected with each heartbeat. Normal is about 50 to 60%. Um, anything below that, we would consider reduced ejection fraction. Um, and anything over 50% that, uh, that's in a heart failure patient, we would call that heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So when you're looking at a reduced ejection fraction, less than 50%, there's something going on with the squeeze of your heart. So we have to figure out why it's happening and treat the cause. If you have a preserved ejection fraction greater than 50%, that means that there's something going on with the relaxing of your heart. A lot of times when we see that, and we see many patients with preserved ejection fraction, we're talking about your muscle getting bigger. So if you think of a bicep 
and you're working your bicep out, your bicep is going to get bigger. It's going to get thicker. Well, same with your heart. If your heart, say for instance, working hard through high blood pressure over a long period of time, it's got to push and work so hard through that pressure system to get the blood to where it needs to go. In turn, it's working itself out and it's getting bigger and thicker. That means it's not able to relax as well. Also, the walls of your heart are getting thicker, meaning there's getting less space inside for blood to actually fill. Well, let me ask you to tell us about the heart failure services at Upstate and how a person would go about, how do they make contact? Well, you can certainly call um, University Cardiology at 90 Presidential Plaza. That's where our main offices are, but we have many satellite offices. We have great providers. We do also have a heart failure clinic um, with heart failure nurses at University Cardiology at Upstate Healthcare Center. Inpatient, you can ask if you're inpatient and you want to talk to somebody, you can ask any of your nurses. They know how to get a hold of us. Um, and we're on through the operating system as well. Well, I know the heart failure team at Upstate recently earned an award from the American Heart Association. Can you tell us what that was? Absolutely. We've been working very hard. Um, we did receive the American Heart Association Gold Plus Award for heart failure care. Uh, we also received a Target Diabetes Honor Roll Award. Um, there are medications for diabetics that are proven to help with heart failure. And we have proven that most of our patients with diabetes are able to take those medications and are being prescribed those medications. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with nurse Natasha Zimitrowitz about heart failure. She's the heart failure data coordinator and educator at Upstate. So we've talked about, um, you've done a really good job of describing heart failure. But I wonder about the underlying cause. Is Do we know, is it a genetic thing? If your parents had it, you're likely to have it. Is there some sort of connection? Sure. Um, we could take my, um, I have a family member, for instance, who has done everything right all his life. Low sodium, low fat diet, never smoked, exercised, and ended up having to have a quadruple bypass surgery. Um, and that was just par for the course for the men in that family. Um, so definitely it can be familial, but a lot of it could be lifestyle. We see a lot of patients coming in with heart failure from alcoholism and addiction. We see uh, people coming in because they had a virus when they were a child and now it's manifesting as heart failure later on in life. Um, we definitely see our high blood pressure, chronic high blood pressure patients that have a hard time managing their blood pressure. They end up sometimes being heart failure patients and certainly um, coronary artery disease. So that's kind of like a junking up of your vessels inside, um, whether it be cholesterol or calcium buildup. When you have coronary artery disease, you're getting lack of blood flow to your heart and that's never good for your heart cells. So if somebody has a family history of, of heart disease or uh, heart failure, are there things that that person should do to reduce their risk? Absolutely. Um, one of them definitely would be for lifestyle changes on not smoking, not smoking cigarettes, um, not drinking too much alcohol, watching your weight and watching the intake of food, making sure that it's healthy for your body. Um, 
one of our cardiologists likes to say, if it ain't from the ground, don't put it down. So definitely when you're thinking about food choices, you wanna think um, fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, um, staying away from really high preservative, high salt things like canned foods is very important as well. And of course, daily exercise. It's always good to keep moving. Our bodies were built to move, so you wanna keep them moving. Well, I'd like to ask you about treatment options. For someone who does get a diagnosis of heart failure, are there medications? There are definitely medications. Um, earlier, I had talked about heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, meaning a problem with the squeeze of your heart. We know that through decades of thousands of patients, research has shown to increase cardiac function, help with heart failure, and even in conjunction with other therapies, such as um, special pacemakers that can be placed uh, once you're on a certain amount of medication for a certain amount of time, you can qualify to have something like a pacemaker. Um, there's certainly definitely advanced therapies that go beyond a pacemaker, such as um, what we call ventricular assist devices. They actually get implanted and do the squeeze, um, the work of the heart for you. It actually squeezes your heart for you. So you get better blood out, making you feel better. Um, and of course, last but not least, we do have um, heart transplant as well. Um, in, in the central New York region, um, we do have a hospital who's doing actually a total artificial heart as well, which is really cool. Technology has brought us a long way um, and really people can be treated for heart failure today. How often does someone with heart failure need to see their doctor? It depends on where they're at. Um, there's many stages of heart failure and um, we look at how the patient is feeling. So if they're feeling good and their blood pressure is controlled and they're watching their diet, they may only need to make routine annual visits with their doctor. If there's a patient who's really struggling and they've had heart failure for a long time and you know it hasn't gotten better, it's just gotten worse, um, those patients could come to our clinic and get um, IV diuretics. So instead of taking a water pill at home, they get the really strong IV form of medication and they're in there sometimes two to three times a week. The benefit of that is that we've found ways like that to keep you out of the hospital so that you can enjoy some of your life and keep living the way that you want. Um, sometimes it's, you know, coming into the clinic a couple times for just a couple weeks and we get your medication adjusted and then you're feeling better and then we can go back to normal visits. Do patients with heart failure ever get referred for cardiac rehabilitation? Yes. Unfortunately, insurance at this time only pays for um, the heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. I know that there's a lot of interest in our preserved ejection fraction patients getting cardiac rehab, and there's a lot of hospitals across the nation that are trialing that. Um, so hopefully the results will be in soon and we'll have um, a better understanding of how exercise plays with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. But we do know altogether exercise helps for everybody. Even if it's walking and doing lower intensity things? Walking is one of the safest activities you can do. Just remember, however far you walk is how much you need to walk back. <laughs> good, I, good point. Now, we've talked a little about healthy living and how important that is to not smoke, to get exercise. Um, what about, does someone with heart failure have to track their fluid intake? Do they have to be very precise about that or? 
If it's not a doctor's order and you have maybe been newly diagnosed and um, are able to start medications and start managing, typically we tell patients, uh, if you think about a two liter of Pepsi, don't drink more than that amount in a day. Um, it's a really great thing to watch your weight because besides all of those symptoms we talked about earlier, you can step on a scale one morning and say you are 150 pounds. And then the next morning you step on the scale and you're 153 pounds, fluid weighs a ton more than food does. We're gonna know that three pounds in 24 hours is fluid buildup. And sometimes we see it in your weight before you even feel it in your body. So it's definitely important to track weight if you do have heart failure. So the rule of thumb is three pounds in one day or five pounds in one week. That's the thing about weight. You wanna write it down because tomorrow you won't have to remember what you weighed today. And two, you may not gain two or three pounds in a day, but if you look back at a week's worth of time, you can actually catch a trend. So say you're gaining Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, a pound every day. We need to be really careful with what we're eating. We need to be on top of our weights because if you gain that extra pound the next day, we're definitely heading in the wrong direction and we need to let a doctor know. What about limiting or avoiding alcohol and caffeine? Why is that a recommendation? Well, one of the causes of heart failure can be a very fast, high heart rate. So consuming a lot of caffeine and keeping your heart rate high is never a good thing. Um, so we typically tell our heart patients that a cup of coffee in the morning is okay and pre pretty much nothing beyond that. Just like the caffeine and the high heart rate, alcohol, and it's called alcoholic cardiomyopathy, um, it's a it's a reason for heart failure, and those patients usually have a very dilated, um, almost floppy heart. It doesn't have a good squeeze, so you definitely want to stay away from too much alcohol. Um, I think the new recommendations are even for men, just one alcoholic drink a day, and no more than that. What about sexual activity? Are there restrictions on people with heart failure? Well, I've had this question asked a lot. Um, you definitely wanna to talk to a provider and be open. Um, you know, having sexual intercourse is a part of human nature and it's something that everybody, you know, gets around to and you wanna to talk to your provider about it and get their opinion. But what we would always tell our cardiac surgery patients or our heart attack patients is, if you can walk a flight of stairs and feel okay, it's probably safe. Just remember, everybody's lived in their own body long enough to know something's not right. If you have a gut feeling and you think something is wrong, tell somebody, talk about it so we can figure it out. Well, we've talked about um, managing weight and being aware of uh, your weight to see if you've retained water. Um, in terms of diet, do people with heart failure have to follow like low sodium or low potassium? Is there is there a diet for a heart failure patient? Yes, so typically it, it will be a low salt diet is what we focus most on. If you go back to when I was explaining how fluid is built up in your body, it's that chemical message that your body's sending, telling your body that you don't have enough blood in your vessels, so you need more fluid. Well, the way our body does that and those chemical messages that are being sent are telling our body to already hold on to sodium and fluid because sodium sucks fluid back in from places where it can get it from. So when we add more sodium to that within our food, which 
everything has salt in it. Even one stalk of celery has about 70 milligrams of salt. So it's really important that people get to know their label reading, um, know what's in their food. When you add that salt on top of it, it's like a fire, fire hose going to your heart and your heart just can't take it. That's when the fluid starts building up and you start not feeling well. Are there certain foods that are good for heart failure patients to eat or to start, you know, eating regularly? Are, are, are there foods that work as a diuretic to help you reduce fluid retention or? We don't necessarily offer any encouragement about foods for diuretics. Um, a lot of our heart patients are on blood thinners, so you have to be careful about your dark leafy greens. Um, but other than that, like I said, our cardiology says if it's from the ground, it's good to put it down. So if it's fresh or frozen even, um, that's better than anything canned. I think an average can of green beans has about 1,250 wow. milligrams of sodium. And the American Heart Association suggests 2,000 or less in a day. And uh, I think it was a couple months ago, I had uh, one can of Campbell's low sodium chicken noodle soup, and it had over 1,400 milligrams of sodium. So even if something says low sodium, look at your label. You really want to know what you're putting in, in your body. Everybody puts preservatives and salt in the food to keep it, you know, a longer shelf life so they can sell it. Um, so just be careful and read your labels. So let's talk about the outlook for someone who gets a diagnosis of heart failure and is in treatment. Um, how long can someone live in heart failure? It's a hard question to answer because it depends on the medication, um, the patient's ability to, or resources to get the education needed to be able to manage this outside on their own, um, to know about you know the weights and the symptoms so a lot of people lack resources to get that information or get proper access to healthcare. If we get those people in our sites, we make sure that we try to get rid of those, um, you know, financial insecurities, healthcare barriers, try to get them into the doctor, get them on the proper medication, um, make sure that they understand how to take their medication. That certainly helps prolong life and um, can improve your cardiac function overall. I have had patients who come in and have an ejection fraction of 30%, um, which is half of what normal is. We get them on the right medications, maybe six months down the road, there's a little improvement. So we decide to put a pacemaker in to improve that even more. And they're back up to 55% the next year. So it certainly depends on the patient. A typical prognosis would be about five years, but we have patients who have the medications and the advanced therapies who have been around for decades. So it really makes a difference on your care and how well you can manage the disease. If you have heart failure, does it affect the job? Like if you're still working, um, does it affect your ability to work or does it affect uh, where you live or how you live? I think heart failure can affect your life in every way possible um it can be a big source of depression because there's a lot of lifestyle changes that come with it but that being said if you have the opportunities around you and the resources we can help with that and and help increase your quality of life and get you back to work i have heart failure patients yes who are working full-time jobs i have a gentleman who came in didn't know he had heart failure and he was 
a moving guy at a furniture company. So wow. the, the way he knew was he was getting short of breath at work. So we got the fluid off of him. We got him on the correct medication and adjusted his meds so that his blood pressure was good and he was able to return to work. So just having this diagnosis, you're not necessarily considered disabled. There's people working, right? Absolutely. Um, really, we're talking more end-stage heart failure or a severely reduced ejection fraction, maybe 25%, um, to where you know, you're know you short of breath getting dressed. That is usually a very um, end-stage um, position to be in. And at that point, you probably would have had heart failure for many, many years. Um, and typically, those are the patients that we see that can't handle their medications anymore because of low blood pressure and, um, you know, are having a hard time following the diet, having a hard time following the medication regimen. Um, but most of our patients do pretty well. Well, with this condition, does it make a person prone to other medical problems? Just because you have heart failure, are you more prone to infections or other conditions? Certainly our heart failure patients do have um, a lot of comorbidities usually. Um, things like diabetes is a big one. Um, we also have patients who come in a lot of times with pneumonia or the flu. So definitely make sure you're getting vaccinated. Um, anybody above the age of 18 with heart failure should have their pneumococcal vaccine. So you should speak to your provider about that, not just after the age of 65, but when you're diagnosed, you should have it. And are there red flags that a person with heart failure needs to be aware of that, that tell them you, you need to get to the hospital? Absolutely. Any shortness of breath um, that's not going away with rest or um, so we have a lot of times our, our heart failure patients have COPD. So if your rescue inhaler is not working, it's possibly not the COPD and it could be your heart failure. You need to get to the hospital for help. Um, and we also tell people with any chest pain that doesn't resolve with rest, um, you need to call 911. So those would be the, the big red flags right there. But really, we teach patients that their red flag symptoms are the signs and symptoms we discussed earlier. Those are red flags to call your doctor right away so you don't end up in the hospital. And that's that um, that dry cough or a feeling like you have something stuck in your throat that is trying to lay down and go to sleep at night, but you're propping yourself up with extra pillows, um, waking up in the middle of the night short of breath and you have to sit up to catch your breath, uh, losing your appetite or getting full really quickly, your pants not fitting and your belly feeling really um, tight and hard. That's a sign that there's fluid. And of course, in your extremities, your legs, uh, your legs, ankles, feet. So if your shoes are fine today and tomorrow they're tight, you need to call your doctor. You're pulling your socks off and there's a huge indent and it's usually not that big. You're probably holding on to some fluid and you need to call the doctor. Wow. Well, this has been very informative and I can see exactly why you're in education. This has been very helpful. Thank, Thank you. you to nurse Natasha Zimitrowitz. She's a heart failure coordinator and educator at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.